Thank you for coming this evening. We're glad you've joined us. Welcome once again. Just a quick review. Last yesterday, last night, we had one phrase, God's gifts are for growth and to share His love. You want to say it with me? God's gifts are for growth and to share His love. Let us pray. Holy Father, bless us now as we begin again. Guide us. May we be faithful to you so that we can share your love with many others. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Interesting story I came across recently. But before we get to that, I should mention last evening I failed to remind or mention to you that there is a book, The Prophet and Her Critics, the one that Dr. Brand spoke about. And last night I did not mention it in our meeting. I wanted to mention it personally. The Prophet and Her Critics, a book that helps us to fill out some of the information about the discussion we had in our last uh, uh, evening. And that's why we had this uh, phrase here, God's gifts are for growth and to share His love. That's the whole concept. We want to share with others. And here was a book I wanted you to be aware of. This evening I thought I wanted to switch gears and talk about the fourth T. We talked yesterday about the third T. We've talked about... What are the three T's so far? Let's see if you remember. The first T was what? Time. You're right. Second T was? Treasures. The third T was? Talents. Correct. And tonight the fourth T is what? Temple. That's correct. Interesting story I came across. I want to show you a picture of this gentleman. Governor Mike Huckabee. Governor Mike Huckabee on the left. Then on the right now. Okay. He went uh, to, to the doctor and he got bad news. They told him within 10 years he could die. He was desperately overweight, diabetic. He was a, he's a former Southern Baptist preacher who became the governor of Arkansas. And when he found out that he had 10 years left to, 10 years left to live, he said, I gotta get serious. And so what did he do? He began to lose weight. He lost 110 pounds. Okay. And uh, he became actually a, a runner. And he uh, is well known now as a runner. What did he say? He said this. He decided he has a new mission in life. Governor, yes, but a new mission. What is it? Helping others to get healthy. Let me read his statement. This is what the governor of Arkansas says. If we eat healthy, exercise, and don't smoke, we can add 13 healthy years to our lives. And then he finishes up by saying, the key thing is not just living longer, but living better. That's right. This is from the governor of Arkansas. And so this evening I want to spend a few moments reflecting on the why, the how. Why is God, is God interested in our physical health? Let's go to 3 John chapter 2. 3 John verse 2. There's a little book, a couple of books before the end of the Bible. 3 John has one chapter. 3 John Verse 2, if you can turn there with me this evening, I've got several passages of Scripture I'd like to share with you. You need a pen and paper so that you can write some of these texts down. We will not have time to explore all of them, but I will be sharing at least the references with you. Here now, from the New King James Version, 3 John verse 2 says, 3 John verse 2, Beloved, he says, uh, sorry, third, yes, third John verse two. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things, all things, and be what? In health, just as your soul prospers. Yes, God is concerned not only about our spiritual life, but also about our physical life. First Thessalonians five, Paul reiterates that concept. Here, it, at the, in the last chapter of that first letter to the Thessalonians, first Thessalonians five, he deals with spiritual things, yes, but he also makes the statement in verse 23. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your spirit, and may your, uh, sorry, may your whole spirit, soul, and body pre be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Spirit, soul, and what? And body. All three. So he's mentioning every aspect now must be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wants us to live healthy physically, mentally, and spiritually until when? Until Jesus comes. Very clear. 
Now it's interesting, when we go to the book of Revelation, not far from, from uh, the book of uh, John we were in earlier, let's go to the last book of the Bible, and there's a passage there that we might not think of in the context of healthy living. Revelation 14, those three angels who are giving this important message at the end of time, and here we find in Revelation 14, verse 7. This is the first angel saying with a loud voice, with that megaphone we told you about, the Greek word, megaphone, yes. Fear God and do what? Give glory to Him. Give glory to Him, right? For the hour of His judgment has come, etc. Now, how do we give glory to Him? We go back to 1 Corinthians, the writings of the Apostle Paul, and he begins to outline some of the ways we can give glory to God. We are called upon to give glory to God in the context of the end of time. And here, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. By the way, we've talked about our important, how important it is to live spiritually for the Lord. Now we're focusing right here on physical lifestyle. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all, including eating and drinking. Now, yes, I know there are some who will bring you the passage from the book of Romans which says, For the kingdom of heaven is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and of peace and of joy in the Spirit. Yes, but we must take every passage of Scripture in its proper context. Remember that. So, in this context, the Bible is not saying, live however you want. No. It's giving the, the proper emphasis. And here now we're focusing upon how can we live for the Lord in our physical bodies. Because you know as well as I, if you don't live right, you can be very... Let's imagine, you don't eat right, you don't sleep right. Have you noticed you have a shorter temper? I remember once when I didn't sleep well, at, I, I wasn't sleeping much. I was trying to work three jobs. One of them was to be a lifeguard at the swimming pool. Unfortunately, at noon during summertime, we had about a hundred kids come in there. And you know how long my temper was? How long? It just didn't work. Because I remember one kid running along the pool and I took out the whistle and I blew it so long and so loud that the entire swimming pool, everybody froze. And then I suddenly realized that I was so much living on the edge, I couldn't control myself. And I reflected on that. And I realized it was because I was working three jobs and hardly sleeping. I was trying to make money, but I couldn't control myself. Sleeping is important. We're going to talk about it in a few minutes. So that part you're not going to get away with if you think, oh, I can sleep five or six hours. There is new information. You've got to hear it. It's unbelievable. You want to study well? The new studies that have been done, incredible, that I'll give you a little later on. But here we want you to see God wants us to be healthy. R write this one down. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We don't have time to go there. We've got to go through several scriptures. Romans 12, verse 1 talks about giving our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. So write that one down for you. In in other words, we must remember that the context of Scripture is we are saved by grace. Once we are saved by grace, we want to grow in God's grace. Correct? Grace and growth go together. Okay? And there's a verse that talks about we are bought with a price. Why do we go to that one? Second, um, in Corinthians, uh, we are right there right now. Let's go to chapter 6. Let's back up a few chapters. Second Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the very book we're in. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is what? The temple. There's the T. T number 4. The temple of what? Of the Holy Ghost. Of the Holy Spirit. The sanctuary, if you please. My body, your body, is the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not what? Your own. You're not your own. Have you ever heard people say, perhaps yourself, Hey, who cares? It's my body. I'll do with it whatever I want. Hold on, hold on. Guess what the Bible says? Is it your body? No, it's not your body. Why? Look at the next verse. Verse 20 tells you why. For you were what? You were bought at a price. You were bought at a price. You were bought at a price. Okay? Saved by grace. Therefore, notice it. Because you were saved, bought by, at a price, Bought by Christ, dying for your sins, you were ransomed. Therefore, do what? 
glorify God in your body. Saved by grace and now live and glorify God. That's what it's called upon. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. It belongs to God. So that's important to remember the balance. This is not in any sense or form legalism. Now, now it's true, it's true. Sometimes we can go that route. We can say, if I don't eat right, I'm going to die. And I, I'm only doing it so I won't die. Or I'm trying to do this so that I won't go to hell. You're trying to earn merits. You cannot do that, folks. And incidentally, these two verses here, 19 and 20, are in the context. If you go back to verse 18, I don't want you to miss the context. They, they, we use them in connection with health it can be applied, but it's also it's specifically talking about sexual immorality. Yes, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Okay, verse 17, he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. It's saying once you accept Jesus as your master, you want to make sure that anything you do in your body uplifts and glorifies him. That's the key. Okay, so in every aspect of the way we live, yes, sometimes, unfortunately, we have been rightly labeled as legalists. Did you hear what I just said? Because of the way we have lived, because of the things we have said, we deserved the term legalists. Not because of our theology, by the way. Adventist theology, biblical theology says, when you are bought with a price, then you bring forth the fruits of the faith. Okay, Because you love me, you will live according to my will. We haven't always done the right thing. Sometimes we've been wrongly labeled legalists. Wrongly? Yes, because we've loved the Lord and we want to be faithful to Him. And so I'm suggesting, if somebody says you're a legalist, say, you know you've got the first letter right, the L, and you've got the list right, but you missed the other three letters. I am not a legalist. I am, you've got to change the second and the third letters. I am a loyalist. Okay, the, the E, change it to an O. The G, change it to a Y. Those letters look, look very similar. The E looks like an O and the G looks like a Y. Yes, I'm not a legalist by God's grace. That, those two letters you might have misread. <laughs> I am a loyalist. And I went and checked what the dictionary says. What is a loyalist? I'm reading now one who is what? Quote, faithful in allegiance to one's lawful sovereign. What do you say? Yes. Is God our lawful sovereign? Yes. Are you loyal to Him because you love Him? Yes. So therefore, if ever you are... Now, there might be times when you are being a legalist, so don't, get, don't just think you can get away with it, okay? Loyalists are, the, are those who love God and who serve Him out of a heart of gratitude. When you're married, how many of you are not married? Let me see the hands. Oh, high up. I want to see them. I'll get an idea. Ooh, that's about 40-50%. Okay. So let me talk to you for a moment. Who are, who raise your hands, okay? When you are not married... You might not understand how the importance of that concept of loyalty. Because when you, are, when you love the one you are you committed to, and you do it in the biblical sense, you do almost anything for that person because you love them. And it's not legalism. You love to do it. You might not love the thing. I still admit, frankly, I still hate doing dishes, okay? That's a fact. I, I still don't enjoy doing the dishes, but I love doing it. Did you hear the difference? I don't enjoy doing it, but I love doing it. Why? Because of the person who it helps, and that's my wife. I've been married more than 25 years, and maybe I'll never get to love doing the dishes, but that doesn't matter. You know, there are some things in the Bible we might never get to love to do, but because we love God, we will love to do them even if we don't enjoy them. <laughs> Because our hearts are deceitful and sinful and wicked. We, we may struggle with it, but we say, God, I do it because I love you. I still don't like it, Lord, but I love doing it because I love you. You see the point there? And that's how it is in a marriage. So you guys who raise your hands, you understand it better later on, okay? <clears throat> no, I'm kidding. Some of you understand it now because I know some of you raised your hands. You already have good friendships, healthy, loving friendships where you do things for the one you love. Isn't that true? 
Even before you marry, you understand those concepts beautifully. Let's carry on here. We want to talk a little bit about food. What does it mean? This is that the fourth T, the temple, our bodies. Let's spend a little time on food, but there are more aspects about it. As we were just reminded a few minutes ago, Dr. Gary Fraser is correct. Food is on nutrition is one aspect, but let's talk about that briefly right here. I want you to write in a few verses. Already we mentioned 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Let's go back to Genesis 1 to briefly look at the original diet. Genesis 1 verse 29. Genesis 1 verse 29. And I'm going to read that. Genesis 1 verse 29. Because I want to contrast with, with, with verse 30. This is the diet that God gave to Adam and Eve. Here he had created them. And as you well know, in, in speaking about automobiles, the automobile maker is the one who knows what gasoline to put into that. Correct? Yes. Now you can, if you want to, you can go and put in water. Yes? It's much cheaper. <laughs> but uh, tell me, how long is your vehicle going to run? <laughs> it won't run at all. Okay, so remember, we want to go back to the author. And we want to see what God recommends as the best for us. Okay? Now, you can't put in cheaper gasoline, incidentally, if it says you need to put in 95 or whatever, and you put in 87. Yes, it will still work, but it might not work as well. So you can put sometimes things that help it to go, but it doesn't go as well. So let's look at what God recommends. Chapter 1, verse 29. To Adam and Eve, God said, See, I have given every herb that yields seed. The herb that yields seed. Notice that. Which is on the face of all the earth. And every tree whose fruit yields seed to you, it shall be for food. Now we have summarized and said, that's nuts, fruits, and grains. Correctly so. Now notice verse 30. Because now God says for the animals, verse 30. Also to every beast of the field, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. So for the animals, they were given the green herbs. We use the term for green herbs as what? Vegetables. Interesting. And you know, careful, if your kids are listening, they're going to say, yeah, mom, that's why I hate vegetables. Vegetables is animal food. And true it is, originally, vegetables were given for animals. Hold on, this is before sin. Look what happened in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve sinned. Go now to verse 18. Verse 18, part of the curse. Oh yes, some kids will say, you're right, pastor. Eh, vegetables are a curse. Well, <clears throat> okay. Part of the curse, cursed is the ground, verse 17, for your sake. Thorns and thistles, verse 18, it shall bring forth, and you shall eat the herb of the field. So in a sense, when Adam and Eve sinned, God said, okay, from now onwards, you will also eat the same things that were originally set aside for the animals. Then we've added in nuts, fruits, grains, and vegetables. And we need those four things so that we can live healthfully. That's very briefly just to mention that. And somebody says, but what about meat? No, actually there was no animal, there was no death in the in Garden of Eden at first. The first time that we come across meat mentioned in the Bible to be eaten as food is in Genesis chapter 9. Now we've fast forwarded oh, a couple of thousand years almost. So let's go to Genesis chapter 9 quickly here. We know in the story of Noah and the flood and how into the flood went all these animals. All the unclean animals went in in what? Twos. That's right, in pairs. The clean animals went in in what? We use the word sevens. The Hebrew says seven, seven. Modern translations say pairs of seven. And that's correct because the Hebrew says seven, seven. Shavii, shavii. They went in seven, seven. They went in pairs of sevens, all right? And they say in sevens, those are pairs. That's why some of the modern translations correctly say they went in in pairs of seven. Interesting. Think about that for a moment. Unclean animals. So there, there was a distinction even before the flood between clean and unclean. Because as you look through the Bible, the only the clean animals were to be used for sacrificial services. That's right. Now, let's look at what God says to Noah, keeping in mind the distinction that God had made, bringing in only a male and a female, a male and its mate in the, in the Hebrew, bringing in unclean one pair into the ark. When they came off, here's what God says to Noah. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herb, but you, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And somebody says, oh, everything they could eat. No, the context shows us it was clean, unclean. How do I know that? There's more evidence now. A friend of mine, Dr. Yirji Moskala, uh, from the Czech Republic, he finished a doctorate out there, and then he came, and somebody might say he's a glutton for punishment. I can empathize. He went and did a second doctoral degree, 
And uh, some of us are crazy. We love studying. He did his second doctorate on Leviticus 11, where we're going to just mention that to you briefly. Leviticus 11 is a whole list of the animals that God wanted people to be selective. If you're going to eat meat, eat the following ones. And you'll find that in Leviticus 11. So Dr. Morskala did a study of Leviticus 11. I just brought a photocopy of a few pages. The dissertation was called The Laws of Clean and Unclean Animals in Leviticus 11. And so he studied it. Now, of course, what did he do? Careful analytical study of the Bible, compared passages. Then they invited from Europe a well-known scholar. I believe uh, he might belong to the Lutheran Church. I know he is not part of our Seventh-day Adventist community of faith. And they invited Dr. Rentorf to come to the doctoral defense of Dr. Moskala for his second doctorate. I happened to be in the country that time. I was a missionary serving in Zimbabwe, and I was glad to be here in the USA. And I, of course, went to sit in the doctoral defense. Fascinating to hear the, the questions thrown at Dr. Moskala. Because Moskala was saying, listen carefully, that... Clean and unclean foods goes back to Genesis chapter 1. What? Yes, he has now shown from his careful 600-page dissertation that the very way in which God created the animals and set them up, that the clean-unclean goes back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And there was Dr. Rentorf firing questions, and when everything was said and done, Dr. Rentorf essentially was set, summarized, yes, Dr. Moskala, you have done thorough, careful, correct, contextually solid, biblical, hermeneutical analysis of the texts. Therefore, we, you are passed for your second doctorate. Right? It goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. Those original concepts were embedded there, and God allowed people to eat uh, clean foods after the flood. But he did say, don't eat blood. And medical science has shown us why. What transports most of the germs? The blood. The blood. And by the way, that law continued all the way through. Acts chapter 15, verse 29. When Gentiles were coming to the church, they said to them, don't eat blood. Don't, uh, don't uh, get involved in idolatry, sexual immorality. The first one that kind of covers, you can say covers the first four commandments. Make sure you worship God only. And the second one is don't have any kinds of immorality and don't eat blood. Interesting. So if you are a meat eater, the concept is still biblical from Genesis all the way through to the New Testament. If you are a meat eater, make sure that you eat what the Jews called what? Kosher, you know that. Drain, have the blood properly drained if you do eat meat. Generally, we encourage now, and more and more people are recognizing, the best diet is that without meat. Now, I have not always been a vegetarian. Confession time again. I shared with you some of my own growing pains. I'm so glad God is gracious to me. Okay? So I haven't always been a vegetarian. But uh, when I wasn't, I found out that, yes, I tried things I thought I was healthy. Well, I became a vegetarian. I've only been a vegetarian for half of my life now. That's all. But you know what's interesting? This half of my life has been so much better than the first half. Unbelievably. And it's not simply a vegetarian diet. That's the one of the things that has added to it. Notice that? Because that's not all. I'm just mentioning one here. But food is important. And of course, wherever you go in the United States, fast food and all kinds of food, okay, you see. So diet is important. There's one example I want you to look at, and that is Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, quickly. Very well-known passage, Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. He is an example of somebody who loved the Lord and who chose to live as healthfully as possible when he was there in the king's palace. Yes, he was tempted. Yes, but Daniel... Purposed in his heart, Daniel chapter 1 verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. Stop there. That word defile is the same word that you find in Leviticus chapter 11 verse 44. You can write it down in your Bibles. Ele Leviticus 11 44. It says, God says, I don't want you to eat these foods, the unclean ones, because you will then defile yourself. And you know what's interesting? The laws in Leviticus 11, we'll come back to Daniel 1 verse 8 in a minute, but the laws in Leviticus 11 are put in the context of holiness. Yes, God says, don't eat these things because I want you to be a holy people. 
a separated to sanctified people. That's why God, God wants us to live holy lives so we can best reflect His character. It's the issue of how can we live holy for the Lord. Back to Daniel chapter 1 verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Verse 12. Please, here are his words, please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. So here Daniel says, I'm a veggie, okay, I'm a vegetarian. I would like to have vegetables to eat. This is the best way to go here. As we look at the whole case, he chose that and he kept away, interestingly enough, from something called wine. Write in your Bibles, just write down a note. Uh, Proverbs 20 verse 1, you already read it in the scripture reading, and Proverbs 23 verses 29 through 33, we don't have time to go there, you read it in that responsive reading. Proverbs 20 verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink, you know those passages, is a brawler, and Proverbs 23 verses 29 through 33. Now listen to Dr. Melvin Nisley of the University of Southern Carolina, who clearly demonstrated that even moderate drinking. Now, I've heard in the news, oh, red wine is good for you. It's not the wine, it's the resveratrol. So I try to get red grapes as often as I can, red grape juice. Okay, But listen to what he points out from the University of South Carolina. Even moderate drinking destroys thousands of brain cells. How many of you got thousands to throw away here? Any medical... Uh, we don't want to get rid of them. And it continues. It affects conscience, reason, and judgment. An article that just came out this, last month, January, to drink or not to drink, by a professor here from Loma Linda University. This is what he ends up. What, do we, what are we conclu to conclude? Skip the alcohol. In short, he says, live like an Adventist. That was from Loma Linda University, an article just the other day. Uh, there's a governor general of Barbados and Antigua. His name is Sir James Carlyle. And as a governor, you're expected to host many parties. And when he became governor, as a Seventh-day Adventist governor, people wanted him to continue the normal practice. And he said, I'm sorry, there will be no alcohol at our governor's mansion from now onwards. And people complained and complained. 2,000 guests showed up. Sir James stood his ground, no alcohol at all. Some of the dignitaries actually left, left in disgust. A few days later, somebody came to talk with him and said, you need to cater to the whole population, they told him. Look, Sir James Carlyle said, drugs and alcohol are two of the biggest problems we have in the country. And wouldn't it be nice to point to one place that we were free of both? Okay, and so from then on, they got the message, no alcohol. Here is a modern day Daniel standing firm and saying, we're not going to promote, allow, endorse that in any way, shape or form. He is an Adventist and he's governor there in Barbados and Antigua. But let's switch gears. We're saying, oh, I don't drink, I have a good diet, hold on, listen carefully, pull your feet in because I'm going to start stepping on some toes starting right now. Uh-oh, the name of the article... Uh-oh. <laughs> okay. Dire effect of skimping on sleep. Nobody's left yet. If you're staying up too late and getting up too early, it could have a dreadful effect on your ability to learn. Why? Skimping on sleep actually impairs the brain's ability to create new brain neurons. And where am I quoting from? Dr. Ilana Hairston of the University of California. Have you noticed I've been quoting a lot from universities around here? Yes, University of California at Berkeley. What does she say? I'm quoting now. Lack of adequate sleep is, specific quote, definitely not good for the brain in the long run. And again, Dr. Hairston says it slows learning. Listen carefully. How much sleep do we need? How much sleep do you think? You're right. Eight hours seems to be the golden number. And here's research from the University of Pennsylvania that determined that those who sleep for six hours a night make 11, I don't even have enough fingers, okay? 11 times more mistakes, 11 times more errors than those who had gotten eight hours of sleep. 11 times more. And they said it's the same number of hours, a number of mistakes. If you sleep six hours a night, you make the same number of mistakes as those who have not slept for two full days. That's careful research, folks. 
Now, if you want to study more, I've got, gotten medical news today, lack of sleep and so forth, you know, and they've been studying these issues. I've checked on it. Sleep is important. We've talked about food. We've talked about drink. We've talked about sleep. There are many other aspects. We, we've talked about the past, uh, Daniel being an example, and now here is that National Geographic article. That's where I first heard or read about uh, Marge Jeton. And here is a picture of Marge. This came out in November, uh, just uh, last year. National Geographic, Sec- The Secrets of Living Longer. You want to read more about it? November. It was then on... Uh, they put a, se- a special um, picture... Thing, show together, you could get from National Geographic. David McLean was the one who did the study. It was on ABC News. It was on CNN. I actually saw it on CNN. It was world news. And inside is a big picture of who else? Marge, right there. And she complained because right next to her, where she was putting gas in, right next to her was a big, the gas had a big advertisement for what? Coke and peanuts. So when they put the picture in, Marge was not happy. She told me that. She said to them, why did you have to put that picture in? I said to Marge, I think they got a lot of uh, um, money from the Coke and Peanut people. Okay. She wasn't very happy because here she was putting gas in and it's a good art, a little article that says <clears throat> Marge renewed her driver's license for another five years when she turned 100. What truly keeps her going, she says, is her Christian faith. She and other Seventh-day Adventists, listen carefully now, this is what it says, she, Marjaton, and other Seventh-day Adventists who avoid junk food and caffeine tend to live four to ten years longer than the average Californian. We need someone to guide us in this life, says Marge, and we need great hope. God is a good friend to have. Yes, that's, those are Marge's words. Now, what they've done, and they, I've looked at this, I was especially interested because I lived and worked as a missionary in Okinawa. There were three places on the planet where David McLean found groups of people that lived to a hundred. Okinawa, California, Loma Linda, California, and Sardinia in Italy. And they've looked at all the studies, and then they have put together the things that the three groups have in common who live to a hundred. Here it is. All three groups, I promised you secrets of, for, of centenarians, here it is. All of them do not smoke. Hmm, interesting, right? Number two, they put family first. Now this is putting all the results together, remember that. Okay, you might say, where does God fit in? Well, the other groups might not put God in where, when, ad, where Adventists do. But this is what's common in all three groups. They are active every day. Number four, they keep socially engaged, reaching out to others, helping them. And number five, they eat fruits, vegetables, and whole grains. Five things that are in common of all centenarian groups. And the sad news is that they've, they've reported now, David McLean says, the groups in Sardinia and in Okinawa are declining and are dying out. And that thing that they sent out from National Geographic David McLean says there is only one group that is not dying out, not remaining static, but is actually growing, he says, and that is the group of Loma Linda Californians. Yes, if we live according to what we've been blessed with. And as Dr. Fraser just said, God has blessed us so that we can do what? Boast? No, so that we can give, so that we can share with others some of the things He's blessed us with. So that's what I'm doing this evening. We're not boasting. We're saying, thank you, Lord. How can we share some of this lifestyle with others? Please remember that. We are not legalists. What are we? Loyalists, right? Loyalists. Remember that. And you know what I found at January this year? January this year, a city that runs on faith by the L.A. Times. January 7, did you know that Loma Linda had a, there was an article about Loma Linda, this is what it says, Loma Linda, famous for its groundbreaking medical center, is led by Seventh-day Adventists devoted to a, to health and spiritual growth. Fascinating article about Adventists here, talking about what we do, etc. Let me read you just a couple of statements because of lack of time. Dr. Leonard Bailey, well-known surgeon, heart surgeon, says, I think the health message has been fundamental to the Adventist philosophy of, of life right from the very beginning. That is true. And then it continues, the article says, besides, you know, this emphasis on nutrition has paid off. Adventist men live an average of 7.3 years longer 
Adventist women, 4.4 years longer than other Californians. That was the first health study that was done. Of course, a second health study is being done right now. But why do I share this with you, folks? For one important message. Here is a line I'd like you to remember. Then we're going to go to the Bible to get that clear biblical concept. The reason we live healthfully so that my way of life needs to bring souls to Christ. Do you want to read that with me? My way of life needs to bring souls to Christ. Turn your Bibles now to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. My way of life needs to bring souls to Christ. Never let our health reform become health deform and drive people away. No. What we do, how we live, should attract people to Jesus Christ. And now this is talking about people who uh, accuse us falsely and so forth. I'm just catching on the middle of the sentence from Paul, 1 Peter 3 verse 16. He says, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Those who falsely accuse you will be ashamed if they recognize four words, your five words, your good conduct in what? Christ. Did you notice those five words? Your good conduct in Christ. That's the key. I love the way one version has put it this way. Listen to this translation. It says this, so that others will, quote unquote, see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. That's the key. That's important. People need to be attracted to, uh, to what we can share with them. Now, I praise God. This has happened to some degree. Over time, people have seen, that's why the National Institutes of Health are willing to spend tens of millions of dollars in order to study what Seventh-day Adventists do. They're saying, what you folk are doing can be a blessing to the entire nation. Okay, remember that. So never go out proudly. We must go humbly and say, thank you God for blessing us. How can I be a help to anybody in a compassionate, kind way? Find ways that we can be of help. Never boastful, never proud, only grateful for God's grace in our community. Keep that in, in mind. Now, that's not all. This is what that article says, and I've got to rush on here. It says that Adventists are distinguished, different, because they worship on Saturday. We dealt with that about a week ago, just a few days ago, right? It says they also believe in Christ's imminent second coming. We're going to deal with that soon. Yes, the second coming of Jesus, we're going to talk about that. Then it talks about we believe in proper living, dietary restrictions, and conservative dress. And I had to share this with you because, you know, I, I came across this. Two concerned grandmothers wrote an article called Teen Poverty in America. This is what they said. We spent several hours observing teenagers hanging out at our local mall. We came to the conclusion that many teenagers in America today are living in poverty. Most young men we observed didn't even own a belt. There was not one among the whole group. But that wasn't the sad part. Many were wearing their daddy's jeans. Some jeans were so big and baggy, they hung low on their hips, exposing their underwear. I know some of them must, they must have been ashamed their daddy was short because his jeans went, hardly went below their knees. They weren't even their daddy's good jeans, for most had holes ripped in the knees and a dirty look to them. It grieved us. In a modern affluent society like America, there are those who can't afford a decent pair of jeans. I was thinking about asking my church to start a jeans drive for poor kids at the mall. Then on Christmas Eve, we could go Christmas caroling and distribute jeans to these poor teenagers. But here is the saddest part. It was the girls they were hanging out with that disturbed us most, these two grandmothers said. Never in all our lives have we seen such poverty-stricken girls. These girls had the opposite problem of the guys. They all had to wear their little sister's clothes. Their jeans were about five sizes too small. I don't know how they could get them on, let alone button them up. Their jeans barely went over their hip bones. Most also had on their little sister's top. It hardly covered their midsections. Oh, they were trying to hold their heads up with pride, but it was a sad sight to see these almost grown women wearing children's clothes. However, it was their underwear that bothered us the most. They liked the boys because of the improper fitting of their clothes. They had their underwear exposed. We had never seen anything like it. It looked like their underwear was only held together by a simple piece of string. 
We know it saddens your heart to receive this report on condition of on the condition of our American teenagers. While we while we go to bed every night with a, with closets full of clothes. Nearby there are millions of mall girls who barely have enough material to keep it together. We think their poorness is why these two groups gather at the mall. Boys with their daddy's short ripped jeans and, and girls wearing their younger sister's clothes. The mall is one place where they can find acceptance. So next time you're at the mall doing your shopping and you pass by some of these poor teenagers, would you say a prayer for them? Need I say more? I love the way Ephesians 5, write this down, we don't have time to turn to it, write it down, Ephesians 5, verse 3, verse 8, and verse 7, reading from a, a modern translation, says this, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality, not even a hint, or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Do you believe that? Yes, God's holy people. Why? He says in verse, verse 8 now, Ephesians 5 verse 8, For you were once in darkness, but now you are in the lights. Yes, and then he says, verse 10, Live as children of light and find out what pleases the Lord. That's right. We want to live. Isn't that right? How many of you, let me just see that. How many of you, and I only want to hear an amen here. How many of you, because you love the Lord, want to live in the light loyally to His glory? Many of you, praise God for that. It's exciting to hear that. You know what? It's fascinating and sad because there's another factor I have to share with you right here, right now. Unfortunately, here's the reality. And I'm going to share with you statistics now from the University of California Press, a book published in the year 2000 by two social psychologists, Rodney Stark and Roger Fink. The book is called Acts of Faith. I photocopied a page out of it. Acts of Faith. Like the book of Acts, Acts of Faith. They began to study denominations, major mainline Protestant churches. Now, I'm not going to mention the names of these churches. I don't want anybody to think I'm attacking any Christian church because there are God-fearing people in every Christian denomination who love the Lord with all their hearts. Okay? So I'm not mentioning the names of the churches. These two scholars studied the major denominations in the United States, what are called the mainline churches, not the evangelical ones, not the newer ones, but the ones that have been around for a few centuries, right? For some time now. And he studied them because he found out something interesting. They found out something interesting. Stark and Fink, S-T-A-R-K and F-I-N-K-E. They found out something interesting. These churches were all declining in membership. And they studied them. Fascinating thing they concluded. They did a 30-year longitudinal study from 1960 through 1990. Now, why do you study these churches? You see, there's something that's been happening since the 1960s. Some of you remember the Beatles. Anybody who was alive when the Beatles came here? The British invasion. You know what I'm talking about. They came along in 1964. I was in South Africa. I also heard about it. But from the 1960 to 1990, the cultural revolution in the United States and around the world happened. And people began to say, let's not be so judgmental. Let's be more, quote-unquote, accommodating, more so-called loving. And as the churches began to do that, and some of these, whose names I'm not going to mention right now, are still doing the same thing. I have information here with me at Loma Linda of the, these churches that are dying at an incredible rate. They are still following the same idea. Let's be more accommodating. What did these writers found out, these social scientists? Here it is. Five churches, I'm going to call them A, B, C, D, E. Mainline churches that have, have millions of members. What happened? Over 30 years, instead of getting more people to join them as they became more loving, more tolerant, their membership didn't remain static. They went downhill. Church A, major church, lost 34% of members. Church B, 48. Church C, 46. Church D, 50%. And Church E lost 39% of its members. On average, five major denominations lost more than 43% of their membership as they let their standards down. As they said, let's be more loving, let's be more accommodating. And that includes standards of dress, by the way. Fascinating study. 
Very, very serious. We need to reflect very carefully. Now, we're not talking about salvation by works. We're simply saying, are there biblical standards that the Bible teaches us so that we can live for God's glory and so that we can attract people to Jesus Christ? Now, you know what's interesting? At the same time, starting around the 1970s, and I'm giving you an example. I talked about the Protestant denominations. Now, on the other hand, there was the Catholic Church, also Christian. There are many people who love the Lord in all of these churches. Pope John Paul became Pope in 1978. And they then did a study of 25 years of while he was in charge leading the Roman Catholic Church. And so when he passed away in 2005, they assessed 25 years up till 2003. They did an analysis. And in the April 11 issue of Time magazine, here was a report. Even though many American Catholics didn't like what Pope John Paul was doing because he stood very firmly for Catholic standards. He said, no, no, no. We will not allow this in our Catholic Church. These are our church standards. What happened? Do you think the church lost members? No. Over those 25 years, the Roman Catholic Church exploded in growth. 41% church growth. While the, the churches that were becoming more loving, they were declining. The church that was saying, we're going to stand firm for our standards, they grew exponentially. Fascinating, folks. Don't believe the lie that if you stand firm for the standards of the community that you're part, don't believe the lie that the church will die, that people will leave. The opposite is true. The church will grow if you stand firm for what you believe. You must make sure that it is biblically based, yes, but don't buy that unfortunate misconception that if you stand firm, people will leave. And guess what? A man said this many years ago. I'm going to quote now. He's a Methodist preacher, a Methodist pastor, Dean Kelly. He wrote a book called, I'll tell you the title, Why Conservative Churches Are Growing. He wrote this in 1972. 30-something years ago. Why do the conservative churches grow? Published by Harper and Rowe. That's not a religious publication. You know that. So it's a sociological study. And then Dean Kelly was invited. Pastor Kelly was invited to come to Andrews University. And he got up and he said, This is weird. I don't understand. Here I am coming from a church that's declining. I'm being invited to come to the Adventist church that is growing to tell you folk how to have church growth. He says, this is strange. Then, tongue-in-cheek, he says, I'm going to tell you though. I'm going to read from him. This is what he says. If Adventists want to stop growing and begin declining like everybody else. He's talking about his own church. This is what he says. All you have to do is emphasize that abstinence from alcohol, that's a lifestyle issue, tobacco and caffeine isn't really essential to salvation. Okay? This is what Kelly says. Decide that vegetarianism isn't all that important and that foot washing is a little tacky. And he carries on. He says, and I'm almost afraid to mention it, why didn't you introduce the idea that one can worship as well on Sunday as on Saturday? <laughs> and he continues, he says, if you want to let your church standards down, you will die like the rest of us. Dean Kelly is very clear. And he is the one who studied from the inside how churches grow as a Methodist, by the way. He says, stand firm. Remember, the key is, that phrase I gave to you earlier on, okay, we want to make sure, may, my way of life needs to bring souls to Christ. Do you want to say it with me? My way of life needs to bring souls to Christ. That's the key. We want others to see how we live for the Lord so we can bring them to Jesus Christ. You know, there's one other issue I must touch on, and it deals with things that are very controversial. And I want to just say this. There's a text I want you to write down. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Philippians 4, verse 8 says, Whatsoever things are good, true, noble, honest, and so forth. Write it down. And Philippians 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We want to represent Christ aright. We want in everything, whether it be music, I'm going to the M's now, yes, music, movies, <laughs> right, meat, okay, or the other aspect of our um, life, music, movies, meat, and I, the other M I used was makeup, that's right, movies, music, meat, makeup, and whatever it may be, make sure everything you do, and I use the makeup for what we call adornment. Everything must be biblical. I've got S's. It must be scriptural. It must be focused on the Savior. It must be self 
selfless, not drawing attention to ourselves, and we must keep in mind the concept of stewardship. Everything we do, we want to glorify God. Based upon the Bible, focused on Jesus our Savior, stewardship, how can we best use God's money, and how can we not attract attention to ourselves? And I know there are people who say, oh, but the whole issue of jewelry, that has been shown to have no basis. The Adventist church still clings to it from a Victorian age. Hold on, folks. Here's the book I'm going to recommend. Nowadays, I'm recommending one book every night, have you noticed? At least one. I don't get any royalties, okay? But I, that's why I keep saying, go to the library and you can re- get it there free just to look at it. Here's the book. I read the book through before it was published. The manuscript... Dr. Angel Rodriguez, well-known, well-respected biblical researcher, wrote this book called Jewelry in the Bible. Dr. Rodriguez has studied from Genesis through Revelation, everything, done a careful analytical study, and here is his conclusion. Let me read you one sentence. The Adventist standard, what we now hold, the Adventist standard on jewelry, contrary to some naysayers, even amongst ourselves, God forbid, it's true. We have folk who don't believe it, but when you study the Bible in context, notice the word, in context. When you study, he says this, one sentence, the Adventist standard on jewelry is supported by contextual analysis of the biblical texts. Very clear. And I read it through early before it was even published. I was blessed by it. He does a careful analysis. He shows in a nutshell that their jewelry was used for eight different things in the Bible. Eight purposes. And as he studies every aspect in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, he's found out that six uses of jewelry were looked down upon, were spoken against. You shouldn't. But there were two uses of jewelry that were okay according to Scripture. Do you want to know what they are? Or you want to buy the book? <laughs> I'll tell you, he has found just two. One, where jewelry was used as a means of exchange. We do it nowadays. Gold coins, it's used as money. And that's how monetary. Jewelry was actually used as a monetary. You look at it, how a bride wealth, when you transferred money, they gave jewels used. And some people still do. They put their money into, into gold or whatever. It's used as a matter of exchange. Right? Money. And number two, from his careful analysis of the Bible, number two, a specific functional use of jewelry. And so he concludes, therefore, that our stand is solidly biblical. And therefore, let me just read to you one phrase here. The official Adventist Adventist view, which has been shown to be solidly biblical, goes as follows. The wearing... Now some of you might say, that's not true, Pastor. This is the Adventist standard worldwide. And I know there are some that still struggle with it. This is the official view based upon our scriptural study. The wearing of a simple marriage band is a symbol of faithfulness to the marriage vow. And did you know this? This is worldwide. Okay, I know in the United States there's major debates on it. And such persons should be fully accepted in the fellowship and service of the church. That is the official standard. There have been debates on this for a long time. That is what we as a church have stood for. We have said we should use gold, silver as a matter of exchange and the wearing of a simple wedding band. Only those two things are the one that we officially as a church have held to now for more than a century. About 150 years has been our position. Some of you might not be aware of that. That is the position. I have material I will share with you later on for those who have questions. But you know, let me rather end with a story. Because I want you to reflect on this. And then we're going to hand out pieces of paper. At the end, the deacons will be ready. But listen to the story while the deacons get ready. Her name was Val. I'll never forget it. I was a young man. I met her. But I realized that she was interested. She wasn't interested in me. I was interested in her. I'll admit that. Because I was triple S back then. That stands for what? Single and Seriously searching, yes. But uh, you remember that, good for you. Okay, I was a young man, I was interested in her, but I, I realized she was interested in, guess what? She was interested in we as Adventists, not me as an Adventist. But that's okay. She was interested in the Bible. And I said, why don't we study together? And she said, okay. And so Val and I began to study the Bible. And I did notice she had a pair of earrings, okay, that she wore almost every day. And of course, my curiosity, you know, generally people wear different sets. She had them on. Well, why do you wear those earrings? Oh, this is an heirloom. These are my grandmother's earrings. They are very special. Okay, thanks for letting me know. Now I, you know, because I, I noticed she'd been wearing the same ones. Didn't say any more. What did I say to her? I said, well, 
I want to encourage you every day of your life, make sure you read the Bible. Spend time in God's Word. Feed on the Bible. That's all. And we began to study the Bible and read and read and read. And she got, fell in love with the Word. Praise God about it. She began to dig and she began to live. And one day she showed up for the Bible study. And I noticed those heirlooms were not on her ears. And I turned to her and my curiosity was piqued. I mean, I knew they were precious. I knew she wore them all the time. And I had to ask her. Eventually I said, Belle, where are those precious earrings, your mother, your grandmother? She said, oh, oh, nonchalantly. Oh, I happen to be reading my Bible. And I noticed there that my Bible said a woman's adornment should be an inner adornment. The Christian's life should be an inner adornment, not an external adornment. So I took them off. And I stood there in semi-shock, only semi, because you see, she had been spending time in the Bible. I didn't focus on the baubles. She focused on the Bible. In other words, our emphasis shouldn't be focusing on the jewelry, but our emphasis should be focusing on the Jesus of the Bible. We shouldn't be looking at the gold, but rather at our God. Okay? Now, I'm not saying for a moment, don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying we should ignore it. Because in Matthew 23, 23, that's an important verse to remember, when Jesus talked to the Pharisees, He complained about them, they were paying tithe, returning tithe rather, on mint, dill and cumin, and they were ignoring faith and justice, the weightier matters of the law. And Jesus said, these you should have done, you should have continued to tithe on the sea, but you mustn't ignore, uh, these, sorry, the, the weightier matters you must do, but don't ignore the others. Make sure you have your emphasis right. The weightier matters come first. Focus on Jesus, but don't simply say you can do whatever you want. No, focus on Jesus. Make sure we have our priorities right. I know I said I was going to be stepping on toes this evening. That is the official position of us as Adventists. I want to challenge you, especially young people. The reality is there. The evidence is overwhelming. The churches that remain faithful to their standards, they grew. The churches that decided to be more accommodating and so-called loving, they are dying at an incredible rate. One church now in Canada, I won't tell you the name, they have now estimated, I have the facts here at the apartment I'm staying, they said if this church continues at the rate of decline, they will have one member left, one member in the year 2061. That's all. And they have, they have millions. So they're dying because they are saying, let's be more loving. When you become that kind of false loving, you become just like the world and nobody wants to join your community because there's nothing different from the world whatsoever. I know I might have stepped on toes, but I hope it was a gentle stepping on toes. Because of this statement, my life, of, my way of life needs to bring souls to Christ. We want to challenge you right now, our deacons, and I quickly hand out something to you. And as the pianist plays for us a little bit here, reflective, here is the challenge I want to place before you tonight. It says right at the top, my, I want my lifestyle to reflect and draw others to Christ. Now notice, that's important. The lifestyle mustn't draw, chase people away. We want our lifestyle to attract people to Jesus. The simplicity, the love, the health, the faithfulness, we want to live as loyalists. So right now, right here, I want you to reflect. That's the major appeal this evening. If you want to make a check mark there, say, I want my lifestyle in everything I do. The way I eat, the way I drink, the way I smile, the way I greet people. The way I, what I do when, in my sleep habits, everything I do, the way I dress, everything I do must reflect Christ and draw others to Him. Reflect carefully on this. And if you want to, we encourage you, write your name on there, a phone number, an email. We would love to call you, to pray with you if you want us to. We want to encourage you that your life can reflect Jesus and draw people to Him. So that like the National Institutes of Health, we will have others coming and say, Hey Adventists, tell us how we can live better lives. So that we can be an encouragement to others. That's the purpose here this evening. We want to be like Jesus all day long, in the home and in the throng. The song says, I would be like 
Jesus. We're going to have you just take a few more moments. We'll play this through one more time so that you can write some things down and then we're going to sing this hymn of commitment. We'll do just the first and the last stanzas. I would be like Jesus. By the way, if you have any other things you want to write on this card, you're welcome to. You might have a question, a prayer request, or might want to meet with me. You can also write that on there. And uh, we will, the, our team will get together. We'll be praying for you. And for those who need to meet with me, I will uh, arrange with you to meet. So we're going to invite you now to stand with us. And at the end, we, when we file out, we would like to encourage you to drop this off at, with the deacons. Shall we stand and sing this song, I Would Be Like Jesus? We'll sing the first and last stanzas. Be like Jesus, this my song, in the home and in the throng. I would be like Jesus. Lord, that is our prayer. That is our desire. That is what we want to be so others can see you through our lives. Forgive us, Lord, for when we have been legalists. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. And Lord, help us to live lovingly as true loyalists so that others will see Jesus through us and will be attracted to Him our Savior and our soon-coming King. These things we pray in His precious name. Amen.